So like I, like I said at the beginning of the night, my name's Nick. I'm the organizer of the Open Table. Uh, so Latia and I, Reverend Latia and I, are, are kicking this liberation series off, liberation theology series off. Um, and so I think I want to start here. So uh, right here in the States, uh, the Bible uh, has been used to justify the existence of slavery. A bunch of different passages were twisted. Uh, some examples, black folks were considered to be the cursed descendants of Ham. Um, there was a passage in Ephesians that was twisted around uh, that talks about slaves obeying their earthly masters. There's a number of passages in, in the New Testament, one of them being in the Sermon on the Mount, that essentially, uh, when it gets twisted, is saying that, hey, black folks should just accept their lot in life and wait till heaven for justice to finally be done. It's a dream deferred. But, but who was it that was actually interpreting the Bible in this way? Uh, was it those who were part of dominant culture? Yep. Was it uh, those folks who were in positions of power? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and what was the point of twisting the Bible to say these sorts of things in the first place? I mean, for those of us who, who have looked at our own history, like we know that the U.S.'s particular brand of capitalism is actually racial capitalism, because who was the capital? It was slaves. And who benefited from that free labor? Wealthy white landowners. And these uh, black communities were also given access to this same Bible, but with pieces of it taken out, like the Exodus story, you know, where Moses led the Israelites out of slavery. Why do you think that passage was removed? Maybe because it threatened the white landowner's wealth and power? Because they weren't going to make nearly as much profit on tobacco and cotton if they suddenly had to start paying all these enslaved folks? And all of this twisting of the scripture just did one thing. It, it upheld the status quo, which was racism, oppression, and violence. So hopefully we're beginning to see the hidden agenda that can kind of lurk just underneath the pages of the scripture. And it was in this context of slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, that the ones who were oppressed got a hold of these same scriptures and found something else entirely. They found story after story of oppressed people's struggling for social, economic, and political equity. They found descriptions of heaven on earth where injustices are made right and suffering will be no more. And they joined in the movement of co-creating heaven on earth. They hit the streets saying, no more will our dreams be deferred. They found liberation. And this all reminds me of a Langston Hughes poem, A Dream Deferred, so I figured I would just read that real quick. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? So what we're going to be talking about from now until Christmas is something called liberation theology. And, and the open table, we've never actually done a series on this, which is a shame because we, we talk about liberation theology being one of the theological 
streams that we swim in. So uh, we're very excited to dive into this with, with you all. So um, what is it though? What is, what is liberation theology? The, the Peruvian Catholic priest Gustavo Gutierrez, one of the early architects of uh, the liberation theology's movement, defined liberation theology as this. It is the theological reflection based on the gospel and the experiences of people committed to the process of liberation in this oppressed and exploited subcontinent of Latin America. It is a theological reflection born of shared experience in the effort to abolish the present unjust situation and to build a different society, freer and more human. To build a different society, freer and more human. This, this is not a dream deferred, but an explosion of liberation and hope for the here and now. So for the next six gatherings, we're going to be diving into this thing called liberation theology. We'll be discussing some basic principles that apply to all sorts of different liberation theologies. Um, over the coming weeks, we'll talk about God being on the side of the poor. We'll talk about how God speaks through the poor, the oppressed. We'll talk about how we as Christians have a duty to address different injustices. We'll talk about how racism, poverty, sexism, ableism, and all sorts of other isms are um, expressions of structural sin. We'll also talk about what Jesus' birth and death mean in light of this type of theology. Cool? Yeah? Yeah! I mean, I'm pumped out of my mind for this, personally. All right, so, Latia, you got some stuff for us? Yeah. What are the consequences, both positive and negative, there we go, of liberation theology? Um, Cone, who just recently died a few years ago, wrote a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, comparing Jesus' death on the cross with the, the lynchings of black and brown bodies. Um, and what Cohn says is that one of the consequences of living into liberation theology is that um, because the powers that be will, will see you as troublemakers, um, that one of the consequences is that they're gonna try to uh, make you quiet, whether that's trying to destroy your reputation, uh, trying to affect you economically, or um, the worst of it is assassination. And King and others in the civil rights movement knew that uh, his work would ultimately lead to his death um, because the power structures want to maintain the power that they have um, politically, sociologically, and theologically. There is another, um, I would say he's a black liberation mystic. Howard Thurman tells a story in the book, Jesus and the Disinherited, another good book to read, about his grandmother who was a enslaved person. And she didn't know how to read but Howard knew how to read, and she said, I want you to read the Bible to me, but, but leave out the parts that talk about slaves obey your masters, because those were the only parts of the scripture that continually got read to them as they were um, enslaved. And so he sought to write that book um, as a way to share the gospel um, in a way that folks like his grandmother would want to read the Bible that would share the good news 
uh, together. So I'm wondering now, um, there's this famous verse, and it's both in Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. So uh, the prophet Isaiah writes it, but then when Jesus begins Jesus' ministry on earth, uh, Jesus quotes it as his mission, right? So the mission of Jesus was not solely, um, and I wouldn't even say mostly, um, about like making sure people get to heaven when they die, but more about changing the, the structures of the society of those who were oppressed. And a liberation theology is Jesus being on the side of those who are oppressed. But so here's the mission statement of Jesus. I'm going to read it from Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, 1 to 4, and this is what Jesus says. The human Jesus. The spirit of the Lord God has taken control of me. The Lord has chosen and sent me to tell the oppressed the good news. And the good news is this, to heal the brokenhearted and to announce freedom for the prisoners and captives. This is the year, this year of Jubilee, which was supposed to be that every 50 years, folks who were enslaved would be free. Folks who owed debts would uh, no longer owe that. And yet, it never actually happened. It never actually happened. And so we still have yet to live into that. Um, and to announce freedom for prisoners and captives, this is the year where the Lord God will show kindness to us and punish our enemies. Uh, the Lord has sent me to comfort those who mourn, especially in Jerusalem, um, to provide a place for those who are foreigners. Um, so that was Jesus' mission. And um, he spent his whole three years in ministry trying to uh, change the structures of society, which ultimately is the reason why he got killed. So I wonder, we're going to turn around and have some conversation at our tables, and I'm wondering two things. We'll start with the first one, though. In what ways are we oppressors? Meaning, for those in the room who are white, in what ways are we oppressors? And all of us are in America, at least right now. In what ways is America the oppressor? Um, I think that sometimes uh, we view ourselves as the those Israelites who are struggling for freedom and not the Egyptians who are causing oppression. So um, for those of you who are white in the room, in what ways are, are, are we oppressors and everyone, in what ways has America and is America the oppressors? So that's the first question. And then what's the difference between solidarity and charity? There's no right or wrong answers, just good conversations to have around the table. And then I'll come back and ask uh, folks to share as they feel comfortable. All right, thanks.
Hello. Anybody want to share uh, what the conversation has been around your tables? In what ways as have we been oppressors as Americans? And uh, in what ways has white culture been oppressive? So anybody? Yes, I see the hand in the back. So the stereotypes that white culture kind of boxes around us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any others? Yes, I see. <laughs> yes. See, um, I feel like it at a like what you were saying. It's based on the fear of losing wealth and power, and um, you know we we haven't really looked at our political representatives and thought to ourselves, you know, what are they, are they motivated to maintain the wealth and power in these communities? And when we single issue vote, for instance, or we're just voting in for our own interests, it's very, it's every time it's excluding privilege and advantages for huge parts of the population, particular, particularly people of color. So, I think there's a responsibility we have to educate ourselves to find out what those disadvantages are that we're voting into, um, thinking that we're doing a, you know, whatever. And I, I honestly, for years and years, I was a single issue voter. And, and, and that's like to my shame because I know how many, many, many people that hurt for yeah. years and years and years, you know, yeah. but I didn't take Thank you for sharing that. I see another hand back there. Yeah. Good awareness. Next question um, was What's the difference between charity and solidarity? Or if you want to answer the first one, too. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to just speak on uh, being an oppressor as a um, mass, like a cisgender male in a patriarchal society. 
I just wanted to, and that power is maintained similarly like with white people through silence. And so I want to mention that and say how I work on it, or I'm trying to work on it by not being silent, but being uh, more open about my emotions and not using anger as a weapon. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to throw that in. Any other ways? I don't want to miss anybody. I felt like you had something right there. <laughs> so for the second question, with like the solidarity versus charity, I think it goes towards um, trying not to, even in the essence of amplifying voices, that really shouldn't be the focus. It should be trying to bring them to the resources where they can where they can speak for themselves. So in ways of like as a social worker, like going to school for that, giving the people the strengths and the opportunity to speak for themselves versus just like repeating the message because the message isn't going to be as impactful coming from me as it is with someone that's from an oppressed group. And I think that focuses on the solidarity versus if you're coming from that aspect of just trying to strengthen what they already have and notice what these people have versus coming from a charity point of view of like, you don't have this, but I can give this to you. It's you're just trying to get them back on their feet to be where they can be on their, their own person and realize their own strengths as a human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. All right. I, um, I hope that this series will um, cause us to ask different questions, further questions. I think that liberation theology invites us to ask better questions. There's a quote from uh, Martin Luther King um, that we often don't hear because we hear like the whitewashed version of, of Martin Luther King, but in his speech, where do we go from here? Dr. King invites us to ask better questions. So he says, I want to say to you, as I move to my conclusion, as we talk about where do we go from here, that we must honestly face the fact that the movement must address itself to the questions of restructuring the whole of American society. Um, during the time of Dr. King, there were 40 million poor people. Now there are 140 million poor people here. And one day we must ask the question, why are there 140 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you are raising a question about the economic system about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask the question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day, we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. Mm. It means that questions must be raised. And you see, my friends, when you deal with this, you begin to ask questions. Who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that is two-thirds water? These are words that must be said. Yeah, thank you for that, Latia. Um, 
So for this next bit, I'm just going to give a little bit of setup. So there, there's a there's a hermeneutical stream, and by hermeneutic, like hermeneutic simply means how what like someone interprets a sacred text like the Bible. So it's like we're talking interpretation. So there's a hermeneutic stream called identity ideological. Uh, it emerged as a direct result of the, the work of folks like Gustavo Gutierrez uh, in Latin America and James Cone here in the States. Uh, one of the markers of this type of hermeneutic is the recognition that for 1,500 years, uh, most of the theological and interpretive work was done by um, male priests, uh, largely European, in positions of power. Um, and so the way these liberation theologians offered a corrective was by reading the scripture through the lens of their own identity or ideology, or through the lens of the two-thirds world. And that's, that's a term that Gustavo Gutierrez uh, talks about a lot. And the two-thirds world simply means uh, the collective poor. So it's like the underemployed, the unemployed, uh, the houseless, essentially anybody who doesn't have access uh, or the means to secure the resources needed to live a healthy life. Um, <clears throat> And James Cone, one of the early architects of black liberation theology here uh, in, in the States, says that no theology is Christian theology unless it arises from oppressed communities and interprets Jesus's work as that of liberation. So it flipped the script and gave voice to various oppressed groups who had been denied the opportunity to weigh in on what the scriptures had to say about the most pressing issues of the day. It allowed for oppressed peoples to see themselves in the stories of scripture and to see Jesus as this rabble-rousing liberator that he is. And this movement is what has given rise to liberation theologies like what we've talked about already, like black liberation theology or disability or uh, queer theology, muharista, and many more. So um, knowing our own history here in the States, I think it's important for us to just spend a little bit of time thinking about how liberation theology exposes all the ways that we've been lied to in order to maintain an oppressive status quo. And it's important for us to think about how liberation theology changes the way that we view some of the beliefs that we have just kind of operating behind the scenes, like in the background. I know that for me, um, growing up in a pretty fundamentalist church, uh, I was told the story of Titanic sinking as a way to approach evangelism. Um, so he here's, how, here's how it goes. So. Uh, me, the Christian, would be the one in the lifeboat, and uh, the Titanic is going down. And it is up to me to try to save as many people as possible before it's too late. But we weren't talking about saving literal, like, physical bodies. We were just talking about saving souls. There was a definite disconnect between the spiritual and the physical. We didn't care so much about the physical because the physical was going to pass away. The, the spiritual is what was going to live on. And so uh, we didn't give a rip about uh, the physical state of how folks were living. It was only about getting someone to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, and that was it. So liberation theology, I think, would have something to say about that. Yeah? Yeah? Um, and here's some other examples. Like maybe you were told that poverty was actually the will of God, or maybe poverty is the fault of the poor, or... Maybe your church believed that because the poor will always be with us, which is a, like a wild misinterpretation of that verse, uh, that it was a reason to not engage in justice work to eliminate things like poverty. Maybe your church said that um, all may not be made right on earth, but it will in heaven, so accept your lot in life. 
So these are just like a few examples of some of the lies that we've been told. And so what we're going to do now is it's more discussion around the table. Um, we're just going to spend the next eight to ten minutes uh, reflecting on these two questions. So one, what are some of the lies that we were told by those with authority to interpret the scriptures, those who were given authority to like own this interpretation and hand it off to the masses? And then two, how does liberation theology change that lie that we were told? Okay? So talk about the lies we were told and how liberation theology kind of flips it on its head. Okay. Uh, I, I know that there, I still hear murmurs, but we want to get everybody out at uh, a reasonable hour. So, so uh, lay, lay it on us. Like, what, what were some of the things that you discussed? Some of the lies. And you can just, if you want to talk about both, it's like they kind of go hand in hand. So, like, what's one of the lies and what's like a reframe? Yeah, go for it, Justice. Yeah, so uh, did everybody hear that? It's talking about, you know, only hearing about Christopher Columbus and like, oh, what a great explorer, but totally minimizing and not even mentioning the kind of atrocities that happened at the hands of Christopher Columbus and the folks who came over uh, and the implications it had on indigenous communities that were already here. Yeah, thank you. What, what else? Um, I was just mentioning uh, the lie of like sort of the elective chosen few um, and how, you know, most of the world is not bad and there are these few people that are part of this church or part of this one um, Christian denomination or something it felt that are those elective few and um, yeah, I guess we didn't fully get to this in the, the second one entirely, but just that liberation theology says everyone um, can come to the creator, yeah, not just the, the few people that were chosen in that sense. Yeah, yeah, it's always like you're always being challenged to draw the circle wider. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. So Emily was saying something. Did you want to go? Okay, you good? All right, Amy? Oh, I didn't put it on the table, but um, one of the lies I was shared is that my body is not my own as a woman. Yeah. Yeah. That's a thing that a lot of uh, folks who identify as women are, are still kind of wrestling with in our society. Yeah. That a woman's body is not her own. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I think to piggyback off of what Justice was saying, like, I, a lot of um, the theology I was taught when I was young was very much, like, um, embedded in American history and, like, a certain version of American history. So it was a lot of, like, Christian nationalism that I, I've been able to name that more clearly now and see that more clearly. But at the time, it just felt like, again and again, like you were saying earlier, Nick, like, it was just, these scriptures were justification for wars, like past and present. Um, yeah, and then the like some things that other folks have mentioned, like this hyper focus on individual and like my own like purity and cleanliness and the shame I should feel for not being that in my personal relationship with Jesus. It wasn't about 
and the individual within that, but like for the oppressed. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's a, that's a really great reframe for sure. Okay, and then I, I think, did you have something here? So here and here, and then we'll, we'll probably need to. Yeah, I was just going to say, to kind of go with what everyone um, was saying, that um, there's kind of this disconnect, like you were saying, between the body and the spiritual. And so a big thing for me was that you had to disconnect, like listening to your body and then listening to scripture or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever pastor's saying on the weekend, you know. And, um, and how I would imagine that with liberation theology, um, I have a feeling Jesus cared a lot about our physical bodies just as he cared for his own, I'm sure. Um, yep. And so I think he's probably trying to, there's a reconciliation with that. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that, like, I mean, in the first century world, there was no separation between the spiritual and the physical. Like, it was all one and the same. Even some of Jesus' healings, like, uh, it's interesting the way that Jesus would, like, someone would come to him with something and, uh, like, with a physical thing, but then the spiritual thing would be addressed through that or vice versa. I, I'm, I'm blanking on the one, but there's one in the, the uh, one of the healing miracles in the Gospels that, like, I, I'm thinking specifically about how it kind of threw that on its head and kind of clearly demonstrated that it's, like, yeah, both and. Like, it happened at the same time. That's great. Uh, Garrett? Yeah? Yeah, I was just going to share one of the lies that I was told when I was young was that charity enough. Charity is like a stopping point. Um, and as we discussed the differentiation between charity and solidarity, solidarity was not even an option. It was like off the table. So the people who protest and are incarcerated with the people they're protesting for, that was never even mentioned when I was young. It was like you can give something as a seasonal gift or like around Christmas time or go volunteer for a day, but it was never putting yourself like elbow to elbow with the people that you were advocating for. Even a missionary was sent to another country, but they lived in an elevated state than the people that they were serving. Mm-hmm. And kind of lived like kings in those countries. And it was never in the trenches with them, so to speak. It was always kind of like, we're here to save you. And that's still charity. Um, the, the Catholic worker here in town was the first time I was kind of confronted with that differentiation. And I used the word charity interchangeably with justice and was quickly corrected. That's great. Thank you for that, Garrett. It, it reminds me there's a James Cone quote that I'm just going to read here that I think talks about that. But the Christian community, therefore, is that community that freely becomes oppressed because they know that Jesus himself has defined humanity's liberation in the context of what happens to the little ones. Christians join the cause of the oppressed in the fight for justice, not because of some philosophical principle of the good or because of a religious feeling of sympathy for people in prison. Sympathy doesn't change the structures of injustice. The authentic identity of Christians with the poor is found in with the claim which the Jesus encounter lays upon their own lifestyle, a claim that connects the word Christian with the liberation of the poor. Christians fight not for humanity in general, but for themselves and out of their love for concrete human beings. 
Thank you so much for uh, sharing some of this. And we, we've got one more thing as we kind of close out. So I'm going to pass it back to Latia. All right. So you have noticed by now, I'm sure, that there is a that there is a piece of paper on your table with markers. So I would ask that probably to make it go uh, more efficiently, um, to have one person be the scribe, um, but to reimagine. And these will come up again. So um, if you could give them to me um, at the end so that we'll be using it throughout our Liberation Theology series. Um, we are going to write our own Beatitudes in light of liberation theology. So um, for those of us who grew up in the church, blessed are those for they will. Um, a lot of them are blessed are the poor in spirit for uh, they will see God, one of those things. But in light of liberation theology, blessed are those who are or who have been called illegal for they will be um, welcomed, be, be considered children, um, part of this country, whatever kind of things in light of that. Um, and I would invite us as we are doing that around our tables to listen to a song called The Kingdom is Yours by, um, I lost it. Common Hymnal. Thank you, Common Hymnal, um, which is a reimagining of the Beatitudes. All right, finish up your last thought or sentence. Anybody want to share uh, their beatitude or beatitudes? And uh, also, please don't forget to hand them to me so they will reappear again. Um, anybody? Blessed are those who struggle with addiction, for they will find liberation. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the different, for they will find community. Blessed are the curious and open, for they will find a friend in anyone. Mm -hmm. Blessed are those who are rejected, for they will belong everywhere. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the neurodiverse, because they have a unique vision. Blessed are the incarcerated, for one day they will be liberated. Blessed are those who are under-resourced, for they will receive what they need. I love it. Any other? I love it. You look like you. Um, yeah. Ours were, blessed are the queerest, for they will know love. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the silenced, for they will be listened to. Blessed are the enslaved, for they will be free. Blessed are the women, for they will be their own. Blessed are for the fearful, for they will feel safe. Blessed are the marginalized, for they will be known. And blessed... Blessed are for the unjustly treated, for they will be will receive justice. I love it. Anybody else? Yes. Um, blessed are the young, they will embrace us in a new way. Blessed are the anxious, for they shall be Um, blessed are the imprisoned, for they shall be saved. 
said are those who deal with Amen. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for uh, sharing, and please uh, remember to hand those to me. Um, A few announcements, and then we will close with a benediction. Um, So, again, if this mission uh, and these conversations resonate with you, please. please donate because we want to keep these conversations going. Um, Our next gathering will be on October 24th and we'll continue with our Liberation Theology series. We'll have Corna Ellis here to speak with us, but look for more information about that specific um, gathering. Uh, And don't forget that our Think and Drink So if you love trivia, and I'm very competitive, if you love trivia and it's a fundraiser, um, you want to come out here on November 6th from 4 to 7. It's a Saturday. Even if you don't love trivia, it's really fun. It is. It's really fun. Um, We'll have adult beverages and kid beverages, too. It'll be fun. Uh, And you can buy those online. So um, look at the open table, Casey, and buy your tickets, form a team. If you don't have a team, we'll make a team for you. So you want to do that. All right. I want to end with this prayer from Black Liturgies. God who remembers, they think we will forget. We cannot. Thank you for being a God who keeps accounts of every evil thing. A God who calls us toward habits of memory for both death and liberation. Forgive us for how we've discarded and dismissed, diminished the evils of the past as some fractured end note to the book of American glory. Help us to remember all, to remember all that made us that the beneficiaries of injustice and exclusion would look in the mirror and be unable to perceive their reflection apart from those dark histories that have placed them in front of that particular mirror in that particular neighborhood. Help us to remember those ancestors from whom this land was taken and those whose backs were broken to build up a fortune and society that would never embrace them. How long will the arms of death and injustice see themselves as heroes? It seems that whiteness alone can never be trusted to tell its own story. Have mercy and hand us the pen. Amen.